This is The First Stop, a podcast with the aim of exploring the minds of artists in and around New Haven. I'm your host, David Livingston, an artist and educator at University of New Haven. In this episode, we'll navigate the mind of New Haven-based artist, Gerald Sheffield. The works discussed in this podcast can be found on our blog at firststopart.com. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at firststop.art. Gerald is an artist working in painting, assemblage, and installation art. His most recent work delves into his time deployed in Iraq by the United States Army. Much of his work seems to complicate society's oversimplified understanding of soldiers and the occupied people of Iraq. Through his paintings, he investigates and questions the way in which Western art and media depict and have depicted people and places in the Middle East. He also explores the United States' chaotic diplomatic mismanagement of Iraq during the war. In this interview, we discuss Gerald's experience enlisting in the United States Army, his deployment to Iraq, a new installation inspired by an unbelievable true story, political rhetoric, Orientalism, and finally, his preference for a specific color. Be sure to see Gerald's exhibition at New Release Gallery in New York's Chinatown. It's entitled Democratic Paradox, and it's on view until February 16th. When you enlisted, you were very young. Yeah. You were in high school, right? Or just out of high school? In high school, yes. I was 17. There was a lot of talk right after 9-11 about Afghanistan because this was an attack from Afghanistan uh, or somebody living in Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. At the time, did you believe what was being said about Iraq as a nation that needed to be invaded when you went in? Uh, No. I I think... There was I I hadn't yet formed an opinion. I think what I was um, what I was familiar with and what people around me were talking about was Afghanistan was mm-hmm. the just war. And then when Iraq came around, there's a lot of parodies about, you know, um, what is a yellow cake and uh, weapons of mass destruction. And there is so much parody about it and there was so much um, talk about it. But then there's uh, shock and awe. And then, you know, we, and then so I have these flashes of like memories and specs. But when I went in, uh, you know, the drill sergeants and basic training, they're just preparing you for, you know, going to either Afghanistan or Iraq. Yeah. And some of those drill sergeants had already deployed. So I was always asking them questions. And, you know, they were pretty vague answers. But also because I was just a private in basic training, it was just like forbidden to even ask. I've had a little bit of experience just teaching veterans in school. I've had some veterans in class, and I've I've noticed that a lot of veterans, at least in my experience, you may have a very, I'm sure you have a different experience, uh, and you have obviously much, much more experience around veterans, but there's a desire to not talk about politics yeah. around what's going on, mm-hmm. and you seem to have taken the opposite tack. Is it seen as a faux pas to talk politics as a veteran? From my perspective, I guess what I'll say is that uh, the reason that soldiers or the reason that veterans serve isn't a political, it isn't based on partisan Mm -hmm. um, 
viewpoints and talking points. And so there's this, this uh, overwhelming um, sense of service to your country, um, your sense of sacrifice. Yeah. Um, we have the Army values that are instilled in us. And so there's this uh, great sense of pride in knowing that you're sacrificing for something greater. Mm-hmm. And there's this sort of uh, idealized warrior mentality, um, very much like a caricature of a Roman soldier um, mm-hmm. that's very instilled in us that you know you're you're dying for your country and that gets so ingrained into you that you're not thinking about um, the policy behind it and you actually don't have much opportunity um, and I've, I've told this to a few of my friends you don't really have much opportunity to question um, policy and question orders because um, you learn that that's the um, difference between life and death if you're there and you don't believe it, yeah, then that's a bad thing for your well-being, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, totally, totally, yeah. When did you start to sort of question your reasons for being, in, you know, enlisted or deployed? Oh, so th- those are two good points, reasons for being enlisted and deployed. Yeah. Um, so I'll start for reasons. Yeah, you're right. Being, it's two questions, yeah. really. No, 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 because yeah. they're very specific. And I, I know I remember in basic training, <laughs> I remember in basic training, uh, there was another soldier and he was, he was just sitting there and he was just staring out. And he's like, uh, he's like, I think I just have to reconcile with the decision I just made for the rest of my life. Whoa. And, <laughs> and it just, it had the weight of it hit me. And I think um, once I got to my unit, um, after basic training, you go to an, um, your own specialty school and then you go to your unit. And uh, once I got to my unit, I think I realized how um, big of an institu- powerful of an institution the American military was. I think the weight of that hit me that, oh, this wasn't just something, this wasn't like going to school or going to camp. Um, this was um, an American institution, like the most mm-hmm. powerful institution in the country, in the world, arguably. Mm-hmm. And you got the sense of that because everything was just, Everything was tight. And mm-hmm. um, when I started to question uh, the deployment, um, man, that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a big one. Um, let's see, how do I try to explain this? Because there's also, and this is something that I've been trying to, to figure out if I want to even um, represent in my work, mm-hmm. um, was just that, that first landing into Iraq or into Baghdad. And... Um, the planes do something that's called a combat dive. And basically it goes pretty much straight down. Whoa. And in, instead of like, you know, how when you're landing, there's like a little yeah. angle, the plane almost goes um, vertical and because it has to avoid any um, sense of um, um, gunfire or anything right. that, that comes mm-hmm. in. So it, it, it dives straight down and then it kind of comes in low. And uh, so that one, the pilot's, kind of prepared us for it but we weren't really prepared and then the doors open and it's just this intense like blanket of heat Mm -hmm. and that we're just not accustomed to and it was it's like two o'clock in the morning it's dark two in the morning and it's a blanket of heat yeah that's rough yeah and uh and immediately every and we're all in our full body armor and everyone is just like sweating and we're we're sitting at the um in the flight zone and um we get in and there's supposed to be a unit that receives us, that you know, brings us in, processes us, um, the paperwork, and sends us to maybe um, like our living quarters. Um, mm-hmm. And um, yeah, we were there for like four hours, and no one knew why we were there. There's all these 
uh, military personnel who worked at the airport who kept coming through and they're just like, you know, who are you, like, what unit are you assigned to? And our commanders didn't know, and they, they knew they had a personal contact, but they just didn't know. They were just unclear at who it was. And eventually, like four hours later, someone comes in and they come pick us up. We go to the dining facility because it's 24 hours. Uh, we go to the dining facility and eat. And then they march us over to these tents and it's just pitch black. So we don't know where we are, what's going on, you know, what we're supposed to be doing. And uh, and that confusion kind of continued for just about six months. There was, you know, so it's just yeah. like we didn't know why we were there, what we were doing. We had trained generically for um, this abstract enemy, an insurgent, an, an Iraqi insurgent. But we didn't know, you know, who they were. And um, um, and then so eventually uh, we kind of set up our own sort of compound within the base. Um, we fenced off uh, a big patch of land. Um, it's just all dirt and gravel. And then we had a budget that we had received and um, that we already had. And then we just started setting up um, our camp and we started setting up our, our, our base, our area operations. And... Um, from there, we started kind of conducting, figuring out, okay, we have to justify our reason for being here. The unit that we're here to support doesn't know why we're here. There's all this confusion, so we have to figure out something. And um, and so we kind of picked up on some of the informa- intelligence that was already provided to us about certain dif- um, different um, areas of operation around Baghdad. And then from there, we just started working as vague and as confusing as it may sound, that's exactly how it was. So mm-hmm. I can only. No, that's great. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, and and that 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 just carried on. And I think yeah. that um, that confusion, the confusion that people may have back here in the United States is just about the same confusion I had. And that may not be everyone's experience because I was with a small unit. But uh, that was my experience. And so that's when I started to kind of have some doubts and questions. That leads me to want to talk about the the teddy bear story that you told, because that almost seems emblematic of the confusion that you're talking about. Yeah. You've got a darkly humorous, I would say. Yeah. It has a humorous aspect and also kind of a terrifying and creepy feel. There are teddy bears stuffed into a locker with mm-hmm. these menacing, glowing red eyes. And they're wired together. I think that's important, too. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about that? So it took a little time to uh, construct this installation. But basically, uh, it's an old locker that I found that was dumped out around my studio um, Mm -hmm. in West Haven. And I went to Goodwill and picked up a bunch of uh, teddy bears. And then the wires I bought um, online. And then I just started wiring and um, configuring, um, taking out all the... It was kind of a violent process, actually to start too, because I started just cutting up the teddy bears and ripping out the cot, um, all mm-hmm. the, the insides and then cutting off the eyes. And then, right. and then yeah, I yeah. had all these LEDs and then I started stuffing the LEDs and the eyes or the eye sockets of the teddy mm-hmm. bear. Um, but the reference to this uh, installation, um, I talked about that first six months of confusion. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the assignments we took on is kind of contingent with this uh, operation, Iraqi children. And basically, this is like win the hearts, win the minds. And um, we were handing out uh, teddy bears to a lot of the kids. And it's sort of a, a soft diplomacy uh, military operation. And uh, as we're also collecting information, intelligence, 
and getting a survey of different um, uh, areas mm-hmm. and uh, and who we were working with and understanding who we were working with. But we were handing out these teddy bears, and the teddy bears were sourced from China because the army goes with the uh, lowest bidder on um, basically all of his contracts. So we had these teddy bears from China that mm-hmm. were that um, lit up when you waved. They had this motion sensor, and then they spoke this uh, gibberish. And it was really interesting because, I mean, for one, they were funny because we were just like, this doesn't even make sense. But of course, this is something because there's this whole cultural oversight of dealing with the Iraqis. Were they speaking Chinese, like, or was it literally just noises? It was just they... noises okay. because even yeah. the translators didn't understand what they were saying. It was like, Got are it. they supposed to be speaking Arabic? Right. You know? And, you know, it, it definitely wasn't any Chinese. It wasn't any language. It wasn't any language. Exactly. Yeah. And, uh, but, um, ironically these same bears were used um, because they have these, um, complex components and these electrical components, they were used as IEDs. And so there is this sort of paradox of like handing something over as a, as, um, uh, a motion of generosity, but then it also being used as a weapon of destruction. And um, so I thought, I, I think that was this very thin line of when um, something can be either cute or deadly. Mm-hmm. Um, but then also speaking about um, kind of this oversight of American foreign policy in the Middle East as well. Um, yeah. I mean, from the outset, not that it's bad that they're buying stuff from China, but there is something ironic about American generosity yeah. involves giving people in Iraq, something that was manufactured in China. Yeah. You know, not like, so it's, there's something really funny and also troubling about that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, everything that we buy anywhere is made in China and you yeah. know, that's the way it is, but there is a irony in that. Yeah. I mean, and then for me, it's kind of this, uh, it's really this satisfying piece and, 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 and I don't, I, and, and I mean that in the best way I guess I can I can mm-hmm. say this is because it was the first it's my first real experience with having a real um, mission um, interacting with Iraqis right yeah and yeah then, yeah but at the same time um, it kind of culminates this other kind of the overall sort of um, destabilization of of our sort of footprint um, that started right. in Baghdad and then kind of spread into the region Right. And this one moment you get to feel good about yourself. Yeah. Suddenly you have to <laughs> realize that it's actually damaging to. Yeah. 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 That must have been tough. Yeah. In a it, way. Yeah, it was. It was. And, yeah. I, and I, I, yeah, it's just, but it's just one of those things that, uh, that is just too, uh, it's just too weird, you know, to yeah. be true. You know? Yeah. Were other veterans or not veterans, other soldiers, mm-hmm. um, were they also, were you guys like joking about it or, or talking about it or, or was it something that you sort of like privately were like, what the hell is going on? No, I mean, we, we had hundreds of thousands of these, we had like yeah. these huge bins and they all came in these big shipments yeah. and we were like, great. Oh, this is kind of cool. Right. This is like a good way to start out. And then, you know, we started to like play with the, the teddy bears, you know, just cause we mm-hmm. just pulled them out and we were just like, what are they saying? You know? And mm-hmm. there was this like. You know, there's this slow, like, you start to understand everyone was kind of confused. And then then the, the translators were just like, you know, what is this? You know, and they're like, this doesn't make sense. And then, you know, we still kind of went through with it. 
then we got the news back that from some of the teams who are out in the field and, you know, and they were just like, we can't hand these out anymore. Like these are like hazardous and they're, they're used, they're used pretty much as an explosive device. And basically we had a stockpile of hundreds and thousands of these or tens of thousands of these yeah. teddy bears. And then we just had to go through and rip out all of the electrical components out of all of them. Were they, they were using the wire, like the, the wiring wires. to create IUDs, but they yeah. weren't actually putting bombs in the teddy bears and leaving them around or. Yeah. So yeah. So they, they yeah, they, they were. Yeah. Yeah. So they were. That's so yeah. nuts. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and that's like kind of like the basis of a improvised explosive device where they wow. were improvising using these teddy bears as a you know, device, then put them on, you know, they'd probably be placed on the side of the roadside and then you would have all these reports the next morning that will be a roadside bomb and it's IED. I was reading some of your, um, you know, some statements. There was one that was from usvaa.org. Okay. But you said, I'm interested in standards of rhetoric disguised as rational and objective. I reserve skepticism towards the inherited assumptions of the terms ethical and neutral. I'm assuming you're talking about this sort of um, the the authoritative, objective mm -hmm. rhetoric of politicians and maybe generals in the military or military yeah. personnel. Yeah, or 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 uh, uh, stances by hegemony, and yeah. so what the hegemony or what structures of power determine as the standard um, don't always fit based on cultural backgrounds, racial mm -hmm. backgrounds. Um, Can you elaborate on that a little? What you mean by the not fitting racial cultural backgrounds? Sure. So democracy. Mm -hmm. uh, democracy in the Middle East doesn't operate the exact same way that it does in the United States. Right. And um to preach or to go to another country and and then say that we're liberating you, but we're going to do it through our terms, yeah. our terms, without you know no input from the people that we're sort of supposedly liberating. Mm -hmm. um, I think is kind of an arrogance of 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 language or, or determining what something is. Um, yeah, and in the case with my deployment, it would be. Um, democracy. However, uh, in a case with other work, I think of uh, symbols of power, mm -hmm. uh, the White House as mm -hmm. this sort of uh, neoclassical structure, or even um, a lot of the like the capital mm -hmm. um, as these neoclassical structures that represent sort of power, but they also reinforce a specific history to, especially me as a black person. Right? Yeah. And that this country's founded on. There's a principle that this country's founded on, but also it has to reconcile with a history that why it has the power and the wealth that it has, and that's dealing with uh, slavery and mm -hmm. um, genocide. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, so I think that also uh, what's beat and what was beaten to me when I was uh, in the military was this whole thing about standards, having your standards straight. And, you know, those standards are kind of based on um, a very uh, specific set of morals and values. And uh, I guess for me, where I see there's a breakdown is when very specific people are criminalized or, mm -hmm. or considered illegal. The fact that a human being can be considered illegal kind of breaks down the definition of what standard or what's just. Um, right. 
um, because then those are based on um, very specific visual cues. Can you give an example of a visual cue? Yeah, I think that the fact that we can, or the fact that our national government can create a visual picture of Central Americans, South and Central Americans crossing the southern border mm-hmm. as illegal, mm-hmm. or, or even depict uh, Muslims as um, terrorists, mm-hmm. and kind of um, make those connections when they aren't there, yeah. um, is kind of a, a, an example that I think of. And the way totally. that uh, we have historically seen uh, people who were non-European as something of a threat to what conservatives would say, like the status quo, I guess. And then yeah. I always question, what is that status quo and who does it benefit? Absolutely. I'm interested in your thoughts. I, I don't like talking about like Trump all the time, yeah, you know, but I feel like there's been a rhetorical shift mm-hmm. where there's no longer a pretense of neutral. It's not that it doesn't, the neutral authoritative voice doesn't exist, mm-hmm. but that politics has become so explicitly racist and mm-hmm. angry mm-hmm. Um, that that sort of authoritative voice has been eroded. Yeah. And it's very complicated, right? Because yeah. it's both a bad thing, but it's also opened up a lot of dialogue about that authoritative voice. Yeah, yeah. What are what? How do you feel about what happened with Trump and the way that kind of the way we talk about politics or the way politicians mm-hmm. talk has changed? Yeah, I mean, I think for me, I know before he was elected, there was a moment where we were talking a lot about emotional intelligence. Mm-hmm. and having measured statements and understanding and empathy. And I think that in some ways, you know, that's kind of lost, right? We don't have those uh, discussions about emotional intelligence not in the mm-hmm. same way. Mm-hmm. And in many ways, I think some of the good in this election is that it did bring to light and make visible some of the things, some of the things that kind of are under the rug that had been kind of mm-hmm. sitting there. And I think there's this illusion of progress based on where we are in like our technology and um, social media that um, we're race blind. And I think mm-hmm. that um, this country still, it. I mean, it's evident that this country still has to reconcile mm-hmm. with uh, being founded on racist principles. Right. Yeah. Um, and so I think in many ways he represents kind of the best of what this country can do at the moment because he represents the most racist. Um, he represents uh, the most misogynist and uh, some of the worst aspects, I think. Um, and and at, I think anytime there's these, you know, he's coming right after we had the first black president. There's mm-hmm. this sort of white backlash mm-hmm. um, of... Uh, you know, hard right, xenophobic um, rhetoric. And, you know, the idea that to make a country great again, you know, to go back further, to that, yeah. you know, it's like, well, the history, the precedent is there. I had this experience, um, uh, my wife, Ruthie and I, we went on a tour through the deep South and in a funny way, like in the North, I've been to a a detriment, able to kind of distance that history being like, oh, I'm from the North. Like that didn't, but of course the North was very much involved in that whole history. Mm -hmm. Um, But in the South, there are like plantations everywhere. There's this whole kind of 
evidence of this past. Um, but I went to this place called the Whitney Plantation, which mm. is a really interesting place because it's like the entire tour is about slavery instead of about the plantation owners, which most of the places are about. And it was, and they just go into very specific research detail about what happened and how horrific it was. And mm -hmm. I was, I've been as a white American indoctrinated in this sort of, let's think about the Revolutionary War and like, you know, let's think about uh, liberating Europe in World War II mm -hmm. and like Nazis are bad and Americans are good. And after I went on that tour and I sort of, you know, I've always thought like slavery is bad, but the details of it are really perverse and disgusting mm -hmm. on that level that like the Holocaust was perverse yeah. and disgusting. And I think we've kind of been able to push that under the rug and sort of, yeah, create this kind of moral authority yeah. for ourselves that's based maybe not on the truth. Yeah. And then I, w I would even go a little bit further and yeah. say that America exports its racist policies mm -hmm. with non-European countries. And so you refer to the global south. Yeah, the right? global south. Exactly. Yeah. Tell us about the global, like what that means. Yeah. Uh, my loose definition. Uh, I mean, it's what we recognize as uh, third world um, developing countries, um, countries that uh, are, um, I mean, a lot of countries that are, have suffered from colonization. Mm -hmm. And um, that also includes Vietnam and the Philippines and, mm -hmm. you know, most of the continent of Africa and mm -hmm. South America and the policies that that have been placed on the, those countries in the idea of this whole notion of progress, Western progress and mm -hmm. the idea of Western progress. Um, I think those countries represent the global south. You've got a Fulbright and you're going to Uzbekistan. Yeah. So I was just, I was like, I want to, I don't even know about Uzbekistan, you know, very much. And so I just was on Wikipedia this morning. Yeah. <laughs> but one of the things that interested me was, you know, I'd read you talking about the global South and mm. there's like a history of cotton production yeah. in that country. Yeah. Yeah. That like decimated the environment and it was like Soviet colonization that, yeah. like they were exporting cotton out of Uzbekistan. Is that something that you're interested in, in terms of that country? Or is it more the Islamic culture or all of the above? Or? No, that's, that's, that's uh, something that I'm really interested in. It's not in my proposal. It's something that I learned um, more when I did more of the research. Yeah. Um, and actually Uzbekistan is the, the, the alternate country that I was offered yeah. for Fulbright. Um, originally I was supposed to go to Oman Oh, um, cool. And I was studying Islamic architecture there. And I was interested in um, the Islamic cultures that existed beyond the boundaries of military occupation in America. Oh, oh fascinating. Yeah. yeah. But, um, but long story short, I was given an alternate. I didn't get the visa for Oman and I was given the alternate country of Uzbekistan. So when I did my follow up research, I realized that at a certain point, cotton was one of their biggest exports. And I thought, oh, this is really interesting. Yeah. Um, on top of it being one of the biggest exports, up until maybe two or three years ago, there was uh, mandatory uh, cotton picking um, during the summer. So whether, regardless oh, of your occupation, whether you were a doctor, whether you were um, a lawyer or um, educator or professor, um, you were required to do a summer wow. uh, in the fields picking cotton. 
and then I, I went on and see what was the connection um, on the global scale of the export of cotton in Uzbekistan and found that there were all these uh, petitions um, against the Uzbek government regarding the manufacturing of clothes and goods based on cotton exported out of Uzbekistan. And companies like H&M and uh, Forever 21 had boycotted any cotton that was exported because... Um, yeah, I didn't know how much cotton was exported. And then it actually goes into India, China, Russia, and Turkey. And then it's manufactured there and then shipped out. But mm. um, Uzbekistan is a relatively poor country um, because of the corrupt government that, um, at the time, the corrupt government that had, uh, had exploited a lot of that labor. There's been changes now since there's been a new um, president elected. Mm -hmm. But yeah, that was something that I found out like later on as a um, result of like, okay, I have to go back and do this follow-up research yeah. on this country that I'm going to. It seems like a pretty interesting country. Yeah. And I mean, and there was still some connections between my original intent because Uzbekistan sits on the northern border of Afghanistan. And so there's still potential for understanding Islamic culture and life right on the border and on the boundary mm. of uh, military um, war and occupation. You have some work that is also some work from 2016, 16, 2016 yeah. where there's a really all of your work is dealing with. It seems like the the racial cultural uh, component of, you know, military occupation and also, you know, the people that volunteer for the military mm -hmm. and who's encouraged to volunteer. And you have this painting that's very explicitly about race, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, can you talk about that a little bit? So um, the painting you're looking at is uh, Army Colors, and it's a screen parent on um, canvas, but there's also writing in charcoal, my own handwriting in charcoal. And uh, on one side, there's a screen print of my military jacket, my military top, my uniform. And then on the, on the left side and on the right side is uh, a formation of soldiers. And it, there's a loose like visibility of a, a print of a formation mm -hmm. of soldiers. In some ways, it's ingraining you that race doesn't exist in the military, um, that uh, the military is operate. The army is one color. It's army yeah. green. Yeah, yeah. Um, and we, we operate as one unit, one color. And for most of my career, I mean, there, there are um, instances of like racism and you hear certain racist jokes, but um, I don't know. It's just kind of ingrained in the culture. Mm -hmm. It's not something I thought about until after. This is not mm -hmm. something I kind of reflected on until after, like years after my service. Yeah. But one thing that stood out to me was, um, and this is what I written in, like I handwritten on the canvas, was uh, something that uh, one of the recruiters, when I was getting out of the military, one of the recruiters, you know, he had this way in, in trying to convince me to to stay in, to reenlist instead of getting out. You know, he, he said something like, uh, uh, you're more likely to be in prison, homeless, unemployed or dead. And he's like, you're black. So that's statistically, that's twice as likely. Oh. And then it's like, and then so in the biggest thing, it's like want to reenlist. And then, you know, it's like I had given eight years of my service yeah. to the country you know, I've given everything I had done. And, you know, instead of like, hey, you know, great job or, you know, we're wishing you the best. You know, it was like, yeah. that was like the last thing that was said to me. Or know? even like you did such a good job that we want you back. It's yeah. like your life is going to be is worthless. Yeah. So you should just 
real. enlist because yeah. like what does it matter yeah and yeah. then but then it was like but then it was on and then race was emphasized on it and right. so it's like this right it's there there's this paradox right of the army being one color but also since very specifically like oh you black man you're not going to be as successful and yeah. to, to acknowledge that you know it was um a very um powerful um statement and uh, I, it resonated with me emotionally, of course. And so um, I think I left the military or- originally with a lot of resentment Yeah. Um, based on that, though. Do you have regrets about enlisting or do you feel like it was a necessary thing to do given the circumstances of your life? No, um, but I will say that uh, when I first got out and I when I first got out, I went to New York mm-hmm. for, um, and went to college. Mm-hmm. Um, I went to School of Visual Arts and uh, I I wasn't, I didn't have any regrets, but I was ashamed. Um, and I think shame was one of the biggest things because um, no one knew about, you know, what the military, I had come from a place where everyone was always on all the time and mm-hmm. everyone was always aware of the current events and what's going on globally. And then I get out and it's kind of gray and it's kind of blurred and no one really cares. You don't have to care. Right. And it's not your job to care. And uh, in many ways to stay happy, you know, you just avoid thinking about it. Yeah. And I think yeah. that uh, or at least people I encounter avoid, you know, thinking or talking about it. I had an art history class and we were talking about there was something about artists going along with these military expeditions and doing these Orientalist paintings. And mm-hmm. I remember saying, oh yeah, you know, and I got really excited. It's like my first year of college. And I got really excited and I started talking about my experience and seeing like Saddam's palaces and the class was quiet. No one said anything. And wow. at the time, you know, my initial sort of reaction was like, I, I messed up, you know, and it was like, I said something wrong because no one had any response. And then we just switched the subject and we just went on with the lesson. I was like, and then I made it a conscious decision. I was like, I will never talk about my military experience ever because yeah. obviously it doesn't, you know, mean anything here. So, yeah, yeah. there's a kind of disconnect yeah. between what's going on here. And we don't have that kind of emotional co- connection. Mm-hmm. There isn't a draft. So yeah. there are all these people who just have no don't have to confront mm-hmm. military service yeah. in the way that other people do. I had a show with a Israeli soldier mm-hmm. and she, you know, she kind of gave me some uh, interesting insight because she was like, you know, here, no one talks about the war. No one talks about what's going on, even though it's still a war going on. But, you know, everyone talks about uh, the soldiers with PTSD. That's something that everyone talks about, the effects, but no one talks about the event that causes it. Right. And no one questions that's fascinating. That. Yeah, that's yeah. so true. And then she said, you know, in Israel, everyone, there's always, everyone's talking about the conflict, the conflict, the conflict. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she's like, but because everyone serves, you know, everyone is always talking about it, but no one talks about mental health. And so she's like, you know, there's this flip, you know, no one talks about mental health because mm-hmm. it's just what everyone does. And it was just really interesting to hear that. We're open to talking about the consequences of the war on human lives and the people who served, but we actually don't ever interrogate why that is a case because there's an entire population of people coming home with these mm-hmm. issues. To just go back to your, you know, why you enlisted, right? Yeah. September 11th was this shock yeah. because it was the only time 
America has confronted war on the sort of soil of like the lower 48. I think that flipped us on our like it was like what this doesn't make sense right absolutely and it was this moment of like seeing what destruction like how destructive war is yeah and i think you know? at the same time there's this buildup of what shock and all looked like visually yeah and it looked like hollywood it looked it had totally. the spectacle of like the big explosions and and everyone's like yeah that's war and i and i and i remember that right but then you know there's this other part that it's like okay it just doesn't end with the credits you know life right. still goes on you see these places being bombed and mm -hmm. stuff but there's they look as you were saying right they look like fireworks we never saw bodies that had been damaged and explode you know yeah by those beautiful fireworks right so yeah. and that's all we got to see mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um it brings me to that painting cnn like what what are you looking at here? It looks like some kind of explosion of something. Yeah. It's abstracted, which is interesting because our sort of understanding of of what's going on is yeah. so abstracted, right? And yeah. Um, I wanted to pick this moment of uh, confrontation between where our country shifts, mm -hmm. but also there's this abstraction of imagery. And I, what we're looking at is actually a zoomed in representation of uh, a threshold a doorway, um, an arched doorway. Ah. And um, and I wanted that to be a place of, okay, there's this threshold where we enter into this other space. Um, you can call that this epoch where we're dealing with the war on terror. We're mm. dealing with a uh, mm. uh, Department of Homeland Security. But then there's this other image that's very um, representative of 9-11, um, and that I wanted to mm -hmm. um, reference. It does, and, it and, does have that totally. Yeah, yeah. and so... Again, like I said earlier, you know, this is that moment um, for me, that first, you know, moment I see that's like, you know, my coming of age, 9-11. Yeah. Um, and then that's a reference point for me where things shift and, and my life changes forever, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. that's where I'm coming from with that. And then in, in, and then also a reference to uh, the news media, the, the role that they play in our in constructing what we know and see in, in our society. When you were in Iraq, mm -hmm. did you and uh, other soldiers watch CNN? Did oh, you yeah. watch like you're you're sort of watching this conflict while you're there? Yeah, right? yeah. That must have been really weird. Yeah, that was really weird. I mean, I can I can think of very specific moments where there was an explosion downtown Baghdad. It was a huge explosion, and I just remember like we we heard it. You know, and then you see this the smoke, and it's just, it's just it's 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 crazy. And then all of a sudden, I mean, we're we're about six seven hours ahead of the East Coast uh, when I was in Baghdad, and I see it on like the morning news, and it it's it's noon, you know, mm -hmm. and in Baghdad, and it's like already reporting, and I was like, whoa, this is surreal. I'm like at once at one point, I'm like looking outside, and I see like the big plume of smoke, right? But then at the same time, it's right on the television too, because we had like CNN, Fox News, and Al Jazeera. On. That's so nuts. Yeah. yeah. To see it mediated and to see it in person yeah, is really a, a, an interesting thing. Yeah. And I, and I think that's like, that's a moment where you're like, oh, wow, this, this is really happening, you know? Your latest series, these, this portrait of um, workers. Mm -hmm who are not American, who, um, but are, 
are working for America, mm-hmm. um, and these are photos from your cell phone. Mm-hmm. What's the importance for you of taking this digital image, right, mm-hmm. and turning it into a material or an object, mm-hmm. uh, a painting? What's important to you about that? Yeah. Um, so I just want to go back a little bit. Yeah. It, it wasn't my cell phone, actually. It was like a point and shoot because um, this is like 2007. Okay. So it's a digital camera, <laughs> Yeah, it's right? a digital camera. Okay, yeah, got it. Yeah. And, uh, and um, so one of the things I picked up, I mean, doing this work in some ways have lifted the burden of like these repressed memories that I've mm-hmm. had. And um, the more that I've had been able to exhibit the work or even talk about it, it's opened up other um, uh, things that I've thought about representing. And when I talk about uh, the translators I interacted with or I talk about Indian and Bangladesh um, migrant workers who are serving us in the chow hall um, in the diner facility, um, it brings up things like, oh, okay, I can represent this in a two-dimensional or a painting something that has a little bit of a, a history like uh, perspective that's more mm-hmm. deliberate um, that can slow down some of the things that I, that I want to get out. And mm-hmm. I think that uh, I want to emphasize certain aspects. But the reason that I chose to represent these people um, instead of just using the digital photography is that, one, the photos are like old and they're just, the resolution was really bad. I think the, yeah. the camera was like, at the time, like three or five megapixel yeah. camera. So it's like the resolution is actually really bad. And what I did was, okay, there, there was a point where I had to mediate it through my eye and my hand as a painter um, to bring out certain details um, to, to sort of, uh, because I thought that, you know, just showing the photos, they just, they look like bad um, yeah. old photos. Um, and I don't think that some of the things will get across unless I, um, bring out some of those details. I was also wondering about, um, cause you're, I think you're a little younger than me, but you're the sort of the same generation of, you know, we grew up maybe not using a computer all the time. Right. Yeah, and yeah. objects are important to us and the way that we experience the digital world is different to oh, us than to, to slightly later generation. And I, I was thinking actually about a lot about this because of your work. I was uh, thinking about how I have to like write something down for it to get into my head or for yeah. it to sort of yeah. be real. Yeah. And yeah. there's a way in which, from my perspective, that digital things aren't real and they aren't yeah. sort of there. Yeah. Yeah. If you're thinking about it, trying to kind of deal with a memory, mm-hmm. it's like physically embodying the memory through gesture and through paint is a very different experience, right? Than yeah. looking at an image. Yeah. I mean, I, I think you're also getting on like why I'm attracted to painting too. Totally. Yeah. Is that what it does with memory and like what it does with, uh, uh, like you said, writing something down rather than just it being mediated through digital. And I, I have that saying, it's so funny. I have that same view that something digital is um, ephemeral. Mm-hmm. And I always think that I always have this like anxiety that it can always be gone and it can always be lost. And when we talked about the other painting, Army Colors, that's when I started writing on my paintings too, because I was mm-hmm. like, you know, there's no other way to represent this than to like 
go back through my own notes. Um, right, right. And, yeah, yeah. And just and, have it written yeah, out. and have to, it written out. And interesting. so that came from a place of, you know, going through my own footlocker and bringing out some of these old uh, notes and notebooks that I had in journals. And uh, yeah, so that completely like I, I'm like right there with you on that. That leads me to ask you about your your sort of assemblage with mm-hmm. an American flag and it looks like a dark like a black plexi mm-hmm. a rectangle kind of pinning the flag to the wall and then a, a hand mm-hmm. holding a cell phone yeah it seems related in a way to what we're talking well we're talking about the digital so it seems very related yeah what were you thinking about with that um there is a there's a specific quote that I had got from John Berger. Publicity turns consumption into a substitute for democracy. And he's talking about that in ways of seeing. And so publicity turns consumption into a substitute for democracy. And I think that I was thinking about things that are mediated um, through many of our platforms, social media, mm-hmm. um, cable news and popular culture, something that's digitally uh, our film and cinema. And um, how, you know, the number of likes or the number of of followers you have kind of dictates who's right and and what's um, the right thing and what's politically correct. The juxtaposition of all the objects that you mentioned uh, were important to me because I had never used a flag ever in my work. And I originally um, I've had this flag for a while. Originally, I, I was hesitant because I thought it would be a little too cliche, mm-hmm. given my own background mm-hmm. and uh, and what most people had knew about know about my biography. Mm-hmm. And so, I kind of got over that once I realized, like, I had some uh, sense of uh, I don't know. I just I felt like obligated that you know I was like, okay, I can do you know I can use the flag. If anyone can use the flag in a piece of artwork, it's me um, mm-hmm. because I've wore the flag on my shoulder. Um, and so uh, so that was the original impulse. But also I wanted to juxtapose that very strong, powerful symbol of national identity and what that represents for most people. It's very different. Mm. Um, and I wanted to juxtapose that with something that showed what I would think of as um, a contemporary portrait of America. There are multiple ways to read into it, and that's very intentional because I think on their own, each symbol was powerful enough. But juxtapose, they create this um, narrative I thought that was really interesting that mm-hmm. can be read any kind of way. And I thought the pluralism of what those symbols represent um, were super important. But then, like the, yeah, you, like you said, this black sort of void, right? Mm-hmm. Or this black mirror or this black plexi that acts as this you know, threshold between being able to see something, being able to project something on it, but then not be able to see in something and something being um, removed or refused or this mm-hmm. this idea of the refusal to see something um, was really important. Um, it makes me think a little bit about, and I'm talking about myself yeah. as much as anybody else, the, um, the way in which social media plays upon vanity, right? Yeah. And sort of not being able to fully wrap our minds around information because it's contingent upon, as you said, uh, likes and approval. 
that seems to be the way it operates in a way is like it's it's about us right it's not about even if we're making a political statement on yeah. social media uh it it feels almost it's more about the person making the statement than about the other people in yeah. some respects yeah and i think like you know ironically with so much visibility and so much that we have access to there's a lot we don't know you know with so much access to information we still don't know that you know most people still don't know that we're still at war right right and it's like this kind of like this irony right this right kind of weird irony that you know uh i like the social media aspect the reference that you have because yeah there's this idea of like the selfie but then it's like you know what stares back you know we might not know what that actually looks like with so much access to it totally you know we there are things that we don't see I also start thinking about how social media has affected the news media yeah. and how articles are sort of written for popularity yeah. uh, and my own addiction to uh, tabloid articles that are like, I don't know, whatever, like dopamine enhancers, mm -hmm. you know, like, mm -hmm. you know, uh, family murdered in their cottage or something, which is like, oh, my God, that's crazy. I, I need to look at that. But then thinking about the complexity of a war being fought abroad. Yeah, it doesn't do that. So we have the access to all of this information. Yet again, it's this popularity con contest. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You've noticed that. The New York Times, for a while at least, they've gotten a little better about it, but it was always like, what did Trump just say, right? And that's sort of like how, <laughs> yeah. almost how he won the election by playing to that social media addiction to sensationalism. And I, and I think part of me wants to have an intervention into that way. Yeah. Like, you know, it's like, I'm not to say that one is good or bad, but I, I just, I was interested in the intervention of, okay, what happens when you kind of just stop, you know, and, mm -hmm. and kind of look mm -hmm. and what happens, um, you know, and I, and I think that, uh, I think that's an interesting perspective for me. And I think that's mm -hmm. where art works for me in telling my personal narrative, but also representing these other aspects of just our existence in the world and how we interact with, with one another is these spaces where you can stop and contemplate. Um, you can allow for these materials to be an intervention, something that we take for granted, like mm -hmm. our national identity, for mm -hmm. instance. Because, you know, you think about when someone says, you know, a true American, you know, you hear that kind of. Yeah, you do. You, know, you, you kind of have a visual of who that looks like. Right. You know, but then the American identity is actually really uh, complex. And it's really it's intersecting with these different cultures and nationalities. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I'm just really interested in like, where can I where can I kind of just pause and where can I hit the pause button mm -hmm. and allow us all to, you know, kind of take a step back and um, just breathe a little bit before we run into the next thing. Um, mm -hmm. and be a little bit too overwhelmed with all the information that we have, because not all of it's like useful. Last night I showed Ruthie, I was showing her your, your palace paintings. I was like, these are really interesting and like mysterious and kind of, mm -hmm. and she immediately uh, brought up John Singer Sargent. Oh, cool. And she was just like this, like, I bet Gerald likes John Singer Sargent. Oh yeah. And then absolutely. I read an article uh -huh. With you or an interview, and you were you met like the first artist that you mentioned was John Singer Sargent. It was from years back, yeah, and I'm sure yeah. that you're 
stuff has changed. And then she also mentioned Henry Asawa Tanner, like literally right after oh my John Singer Sargent. I was like, that's the second <laughs> artist on the list. Wow. So she was very proud of her art historical oh, uh, wow. talents. Yeah. And, and so was I. But um, <laughs> but I thought it was interesting. And then we started, we had this conversation about Orientalism. Yeah. And I started, you know, reading a little bit of Edward Said. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and I wanted to ask you what your relationship is to Orientalism yeah. in these works. Yeah. Um, I am, in a way, dealing with problematics of Orientalism. And I understand my position as an Orientalist, as someone who is raised or who's born of the West. Maybe mm -hmm. not of it, but, you know, in born it. in it. Right. Yeah. And where my perspectives come from. And part of me originally started out to place myself within that perspective. But there were a few things at work. And those two artists were incredible references for me, um, especially mm -hmm. in my foundation years as a painter. And um, one, there's a reveration that I have mm -hmm. for my experience in the Middle East and um, representing the people that I've come in contact with. Absolutely. Um, and, but there's problematics of them as well, because I don't want those portraits to be idealized. And mm -hmm. I'm working towards this complicated position of representing, um, what I know how Western eyes see the Middle East, yes. but then also at the same time, trying to find these nuances that, um, kind of give a sense of a bigger picture or a more contemporaneous mm -hmm. picture. And I understand that those artists are working in a very specific genre of um, this romanticized mm -hmm. perspective, mm -hmm. whereas that wasn't always the contemporary representation of the people that they're painting. Some of those are um, costumed models mm -hmm. um, and these idealized. I know with, I mean, there's a few paintings of um, Henry Osawa Tanner that are, that are just like, there's a painting of Mary and the Annunciation that mm -hmm. is probably like right there at the foundation of what I think about. Mm. And because who he is as this um, African-American, American artist who is working in Paris, mm -hmm. um, but he's also representing um, these very nuanced um, representations of um, uh, religious figures. And mm -hmm. and I, what resonated with me with the Annunciation by Henry Osawa Tanner is that Mary is um, depicted as this poor young Jewish woman. Mm -hmm. And I was really interested in that and the way that, you know, his experiences don't allow him to um, go to this place of royalty. Don't go to, he doesn't, he doesn't have in, in what I perceive as the, the luxury of saying, you know, this, he can do that. Mm -hmm. But I think that his ontology, I would say, takes him to a place where he, he has to humble that figure and say, you know, what what did, you know, in my idealized portrait, what did she really look like? Or mm -hmm. how can I perceive her? Because, I mean, given the historical context, she wasn't, you know, this goddess in a sense. She wasn't a saint. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, and I think about that, too, because, yeah, at the same time, like, you know, a Palestinian Jew, you know, who has a child out of wedlock, right? That mm -hmm. would become like, you know, this incredible religion, right? And I think that, you know, and then 
the context of when that happens, right? It's the Roman Empire. The Romans occupied um, really Jerusalem. Really interesting, yeah. Yeah, so it's like this great Western power occupying the Middle East, and then you have this figure that rises up out of it. And um, I think about that in context of, you know, contemporaneously, you know, this Western power, the United States mm-hmm. occupying the Middle East, um, you know, Baghdad, the cradle of civilization, Babylon, right? Mm-hmm. And But then at the same time, it's really, uh, there's this really complicated relationship because the Iraqi nationals, there are these migrant workers who are working for U.S. contractors or Western contractors um, and helping to support the soldiers in the war in the Middle yeah. East. And um, so I think I say all that I say all, all that to say that um, I'm still dealing with yeah. that position. And I think I, I want to be I think that's a really important part of departure for me. I mean, it's interesting, right, because you've got and when I visited your studio, you had these up with your paintings of, uh, you know, the White House and the uh, Capitol building, but also with your series of uh, port- portraits of, of, of workers. And I, I, those portraits seem to be very much not Orientalist, right? Yeah, there, yeah. There's, you know, there's a, the guy with his, you know, plastic name tag on and a baseball cap and sort of these ways in which, you know, I mean, they could be people living in America, right? Yeah, yeah. In a lot of ways. Yeah, and, I, and that, that's super important. That's a yeah. great observation, and that's something that's, like, like, just integral to like my motivation for making those those paintings in the first place was to show that these depictions of Iraqis or people in the Middle East aren't you know what popular culture represents like in our media. Totally, it isn't. It isn't all homeland, right? Mm-hmm. And it's and it's these very you know people are who are providing for their families, and um, there's this there's this really complicated relationship between. You're working for this big political institution, global institution, but you're also at the very baseline providing for your family. My entry into that was, you know, to look for ways that to connect that we're similar. And I think there's Edward Said says something around there is there is also the Orientalist who, for the sake of his own culture, has to represent the you know, he's representing the the Orient. And mm-hmm. I think that resonated with me too, is like for the sake of, um, I don't know, interrogating or mm-hmm. um, American foreign policy, um, interrogating Islamophobia, interrogating um, xenophobia. I was thinking about um, how do I find the similarities mm-hmm. as a point of departure and then we can look at the difference as being something actually pretty exciting or interesting. I didn't, go too far into Edward Said, but mm-hmm. I got the, you know, picture of, of what his ideas are about. And he said something interesting about um, how Orientalist depictions since antiquity mm-hmm. have created this sort of colonial mm-hmm. pretext for war and for occupation because yeah. it's making othering yeah. people so that it's okay to go in because they're not the same as us. They're totally different. So why even be concerned about their well-being or the way they run their countries? Well, there's like these large, I mean, if you look at some of those old paintings, there are these large landscapes of just open field. 
Mm -hmm. And it gives the illusion that, oh, this is like land for the taking. No one lives here, right? Right. And there's this idea that, oh, this is like a part of our culture. We have um, possession of this. Yeah. And then the the whole narrative of of identifying something that's other than, and then that reinforcing your knowledge of of being someone superior too. Mm -hmm. And for me, there's this place of kind of identifying with more than... um, more than sort of uh, representing as something that to own and possess as a form of knowledge, but mostly as a space of solidarity and finding that where we meet eye to eye. And then, like again, I said, like that being sort of the place where the 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 work departs from that. Mm. Um, yeah, and then it's like we can all identify with sort of the the ideal working class, hardworking, American, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that seeing the, the the vest or seeing, um, you know, this sort of working class posture, mm-hmm. you know, it's mm-hmm. something that we actually, you know, it's something within our own country that we um, take pride in. And mm-hmm. it's just like, so how do you, when you see that across um, borders and then there's a way that you can connect to it as well. And then mm-hmm. to see to see people as people instead of like, these um, representations of this foreign threat. There's another painting that seem, is a part of that series, but is not a portrait. Mm-hmm. It's a mm-hmm. depiction of migrant workers in Iraq mm-hmm. constructing a wall of sorts, maybe a temporary wall, I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk about that? It, like, What are you thinking about with this particular painting, and why is this depiction and an important one for you to to show us yeah i mean um we're having a national dialogue about the border wall right now um but this was my everyday when i was deployed the military base is surrounded by these large t-walls and they're basically everywhere they they're t-walls in front of they're like these blast walls to protect from Mm -hmm. um rocket attacks Mm -hmm. um but you know i i Again, here's this moment where I take this photograph and it means something very uh, specific once I've cropped it, once I've um, chose what I wanted to represent. And I wanted to focus on two things. I wanted to focus on the construction of these T-walls and I wanted to focus on um, the people who were working. And there are these brown mm-hmm. migrant workers who are working on the base to, to build American bases. Um, build bases for American service members and mm-hmm. um, American diplomats. And I think that that was really important. I wanted to focus on the labor and the labor and what was being constructed. And I think that, that the portraits can be anywhere and also this painting can be anywhere. But I thought that, you know, showing the, the title gives a sense of like, okay, this actually is going, you know, the same way that we think about our national defense or our, our domestic policy, you know, it's already been implemented by the military. Um, and I just, I wanted to, again, interrogate something that resonated with me and something that, you know, we're talking about now, but this is something that's been going on at least since I've been um, deployed in Iran mm-hmm. in, since 2007. Oh, I also wanted to ask you a sort of a technical or more formal question. Mm-hmm. I've noticed that um, there's this mint green that pops up in your work yeah. a lot. How did you come to it? Is it a color that you just like a lot or is it a color of 
you know, importance. I notice uh, one of the migrant workers with the helmet on, it's mm-hmm. kind of instead of a sort of military green, it's this minty green. And it's really interesting. Yeah. Um, I mean, off the back, I don't have like an intellectual. Like, you don't have to yeah, have an intellectual yeah, answer to that yeah. question. It can just be you but, like it for whatever reason. Yeah. Um, so I in undergrad in college, I studied abroad in Rome. And mm-hmm. uh, one of my professors, um, he introduced flash to a lot of us. And he's like, it's this really flat matte um, like sign um, painting that they use for signage. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's very vibrant and it's very opaque. And uh, I started using it when I was an undergrad. Um, and uh, I don't know, I, f- I fell in love with it. And so uh, one of the reasons that I actually started using it too was because um, a lot of my paintings before that were very glossy. And um, I was influenced by a lot of these like glossy oil painters mm-hmm. and the sergeants, right? And it's just mm-hmm. like this like rich, um, rich glossy paint. And uh, I-, I don't know, I had a critique um, in college and, uh, yeah. And then everyone was just like, yeah, these are okay, but they're just so shiny. You know, your paintings are just so shiny. And, uh, I don't know, I responded differently and then I just kind of went the opposite way mm-hmm. and I, I, uh, and the color stayed there, but I just, I wanted to work in a more flat and a matte, um, mm-hmm. color palette. Mm. And, uh, so that's the start of using that. Um, and then I got to grad school and I used it a little bit and, um, uh, it kind of got critiqued out of it. It's just like, you know, you need to learn how to use color and you need to learn how to um, just develop like sort of your hand. And uh, it's just something I came back to, I think, um, just out of uh, just my attraction to that color. Mm-hmm. And I'm still trying to work through um, what that attraction is and how do I use it. Um, mm-hmm. And that's something that I'm still just working through. But uh, I think for me, it it, it is a there is this vibrancy that I want to bring out um, that I think about when I'm making these portraits and I want to bring these portraits alive. And and the use of that color is um, important for me for that reason. I also, I I was thinking that it's interesting to use that color, a color that's not associated with like war. Yeah. You know what I mean? I associate it with hospitals and, ice cream and yeah, yeah stuff like that and it's sort of like mint ice, chocolate chip ice cream but it's it's interesting mm-hmm. to to sort of place it in that context mm-hmm. and make people think about i don't know it, it, it aestheticizes but not in a um not in like a futurist way it's sort of it softens or yeah uh, it makes it's not a sort of it's not a masculine color right yeah it's like a absolutely a kind of delicate color yeah and i think it goes i mean i think like what you just said goes hand in hand with how i approach the topics of war it's not this super masculine Mm -hmm. um projection of uh you know, this young male who's going to war and there's explosions and there's dead bodies. Mm-hmm. It's this more tender, um, more uh, thoughtful, I would say, um, mm-hmm. approach to it. Um, and I think because there's these, again, there's this other aspect of my experience that I'm interested in showing and there's this more, um, I don't know, I started out thinking about vulnerability, but then it became more, um, more nuanced. Gerald, it was really a pleasure to have you on 
thank on you. the first stop. Thank you so much for yeah. coming by. I appreciate it. Thank you. It's yeah. Great. Remember to subscribe to us on iTunes. If you like the show, give us a good rating. And if you have a moment, write a review. Thanks for listening. Special thanks to Bruce Barber, director of WNHU, for providing the resources and guidance to make this podcast possible. Thank you.